The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn in your Bible now to Paul's letter to the Ephesians as we continue in this epistle series, chapter 4. The summer after I graduated from college, I uh, went to work for a computer systems consulting firm that required an eight-week training program. And so later that summer, about 30 of us from across the country were brought to the suburbs of Chicago to gain skills that would help us in our project work. And for the first six weeks, we focused on computer coding, programming for, uh, in a couple different computer languages, and they also added in training for the way to give presentations and how to communicate effectively with clients. And then in the last two weeks of this training period, we were called to put into practice the things we had learned in a large group project. Our task was to create a computer system that had sales and inventory and customer data and providing receipts, etc. And on the final day, we were to present our project to one of the vice presidents of the company. The world understands that unless you put your knowledge into practice, you really have not learned anything of much value. So far in our Ephesians series, we've considered the first three chapters of Paul in which he lays the foundation of the gospel, establishing for us that that we've been chosen and adopted by God through Christ, that we've been saved by grace, that we are now one in Christ by faith in him. And now we have a transition. As we move to the last three chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul begins to put into practice the very things that he has been instructing us in our knowledge of the gospel. We are called to put our faith to work in a manner that pleases God our Father. I read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. This is the word of God. Father, once again, I would ask, and the words of my mouth and the the meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing 
and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Recently, I received an email from a friend that had a link to a, I believe, a YouTube video. It was a political video intended to stir up the faithful during the election season. And I I would guess that many of you have seen this same video. In it, the faceless voice proceeds to describe a certain political figure who had a troubled past, came from a broken home, at one point had switched religions, apparently out of political expediency, developed great skill in speaking and communication, wrote and published a book, and rose to great prominent political power in a relatively short span of time. It's about halfway through watching this video, it occurred to me that the intent of the video was to cause this listener to think of our current sitting president. However, in actuality, it was referring to none other than Adolf Hitler. And that not-so-subtle comparison disturbed me. I wrote back to my friend and the others on this distribution and, and expressed sympathy with the fears of many about the state of our nation and the direction of our leadership. And I began to share with my friends how back in the summer I made a commitment, a commitment not to lend the vulnerabilities of my heart to the latest and greatest conspiracy theory or people's interpretations of whether it's our president and his past and supposed secret agendas. And in its place, I had committed myself to pray. To pray for our nation's top leader and our other leaders as well and and to choose to invest my time and energies into being a faithful Christian witness into the spheres of influence in which God has called me. I made reference to Jeremiah 29, where Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles in Babylon. And that's a helpful reference to me because, as I shared with this distribution, friends, we are all in exile. We are in Babylon. And I believe that Jeremiah's instruction for them is just as apt and applicable to us today, that we are called to increase and to multiply, to plant vineyards, to pray for the peace and the prosperity of our society, because if it prospers, we prosper as well. And I choose to trust myself and my family and my nation into the hands of God who knows the plans and the purposes that he has for each and every one of us. And looking back upon biblical history and all throughout redemptive history, we can believe and trust that God has always sustained his people under repressive regimes of many kinds, the Babylonians, under Greek and Roman rule, even today in communist China. We find God's people flourishing and witnessing and impacting pagan cultures for Christ. I find myself more and more committed to 
advancing the kingdom of God than preserving America as much as I do love this great nation. I would offer to you that lessons from this most recent election are also very instructive for the church. It's clear that we live in a very divided nation, politically, ideologically. And it's also pretty clear, at least in my mind, that many people in our democracy, our republic, do not, do not necessarily vote or act in accordance to what they say that they believe. And I would contend that the church is really not that much different. That we, as God's people, are oftentimes divided and not living out and practicing that which we say we truly believe. And so I think Paul's words are instructive and helpful as it reminds us of our calling and exhorts us to live out our faith in union with one another and with the Lord Jesus. Paul opens the chap- chapter 4 with an important transition word, the word therefore. Now there's at least two different Greek words for therefore, and we find one instance of this word in the first three chapters of Ephesians, and we find it at least ten times in the last four chapters. It's a word of transition. Everything that I've been saying to you Now, therefore, here's why this is important. Here's what I'm calling you to do in response to what I've just been telling you about. I learned in seminary a very important grammar lesson. That if you look at Paul's language and the verbs he uses in Ephesians 1 through 3, he he is usually using the indicative sense. That's the grammar sense of stating that which is. And we find this over and over again as as Paul describes what God has already accomplished for us in Christ. It, It answers the question, who you are in Christ. This is what God has done for you. This is who you are. You've been predestined unto adoption. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You who once were dead are now alive. You have been saved by grace through faith. But in chapter 4, the tense changes. We find a shift to the imperatives, to the commands, the exhortations, the practical challenge as to how we are to live, to avoid evil, to control our tongues, to treat one's spouse and children with kindness, to put on the armor of God with prayer and other such exhortations. And we find as we look throughout Scripture that that Ephesians is not alone in this pattern. We find this throughout the New Testament and throughout all the Bible. In fact, if you recall, when God gave his people the Ten Commandments, he gave them to his people only after he had redeemed them out of bondage from Egypt. Only after he had redeemed and ransomed them and saved them and established them as his people, only then did God give them the law, the commands. Those commands come out of a context, out of a calling, out of an identity that's rooted in 
the redeeming grace of God. You see, once, only once we have experienced God's goodness and received his grace by faith, only until we've understood who we are as his people, are we then able to hear and follow and respond by faith to the commands as to how we are to live. The indicatives drive the imperatives. It's like my children who obey me because I'm their father, because they are my children. They, they're not obeying me to earn the right to be my children. They are my children. And their obedience and response, I hope, is from love and respect as we nurture that relationship. Now, you see, many Christians get this idea backwards. Many professed believers in Christ are trying to keep God's commands in a sense of earning God's love, trying to maintain their status before him. There's kind of an orphan-like fear and and a a performance orientation of trying to please God in a way that is fearful of being abandoned. Many believers need to learn what it means to rest secure in what God has accomplished for us through Christ. And that the call to obedience is a call of response, of joyful, loving response, of gratitude, of identity and ownership, of the calling we have to represent God in this world, not to prove to God or ourselves that we are his children, but because we are his children, have been redeemed by the grace of Christ. Christians, sadly, can find themselves burnt out. Burnt out from trying to serve out of fear, like a car overdue an oil change and ruining the engine. So it is that we need the oil of God's grace in order to run properly and serve effectively for his glory. Now, there are other errors that Christians can also make in trying to understand faith and works. I was speaking recently with some friends of mine who live out of state, and they expressed concern over their pastor who had taken a long leave of absence. The session explained to the church that this pastor, while good at preaching the gospel to the congregation, was not very good at preaching the gospel to himself. And as I was talking about this issue with my friends, they expressed even a more significant problem that they observed. The pastor, when he preached, was really good at preaching on the, the, the danger of sin, the reality of our depravity, and convicting himself and the people of their helplessness and brokenness and inability to keep God's law and, and our desperate need of salvation in Christ. And, well, what, what's wrong with that? Well, nothing. That's wonderful. That's good. That's the gospel. The problem came when it came to response. This, this preacher was so consumed with his and his people's failure to live up to God's standards of holiness, 
He would not give them exhortation. He would not give them practical application of how to live the Christian life. And, and so the, the people felt lost. They, even though they knew they were saved, they didn't know how to live out the Christian life. It was like the pastor was almost discouraging any attempt to grow in holiness. And so his people were becoming despondent and hopeless. I expressed to my friends an observation that this preacher was unbalanced. That he was not really appropriating the whole counsel of God. While his motives may have been good, and, and to, uh, to with him observe that even when our best motives are tainted, and even though our good works are but filthy rags, if we are trusting in them for our own righteousness, God still calls us to pursue holiness. God is pleased with our efforts to obey him, even as imperfect and flawed as they are. This pastor and church also had a practical problem. Not enough people were volunteering for the, volu- for the nursery and children's ministries. And occasionally the pastor, recognizing this problem, scolded his congregation in consequence. And yet the people felt too beat up and lacked motivation and hope to do anything good. This man of God, though trying to be faithful, I believe suffers from a kind of false dichotomy between faith and works. While people can slip, while Christians can slip into a a works righteousness effort, it is biblical to exhort people to exercise their faith, to do good works, to respond to the grace and mercy that we have received from God. In fact, Paul explores these truths and balanced tension earlier right here in Ephesians. Chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So even as Paul is rebuking this idea that somehow our works contribute to our salvation, affirming that we are saved by grace through faith. In this same context, Paul says that we were created and have been called to do good works, to please the Father. Paul preserves this balanced tension elsewhere. In Philippians 2, where he says, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is pleased when we cooperate with him as he works in us to bring forth the fruit of our faith that is displayed in good works for his glory. And so Paul can say in verse 1, urging us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Well, what does that look like? Well, let's look at verse 2. Yesterday, Dr. Rogers gave a charge to 
Chris Walker and John Hayward, two men in our church, who were coming under care of our presbytery uh, as they pursue a call to the ministry. And Pastor Rogers charged all of us to a call to humility, a call to gospel ministry is a call to humble oneself. And if you do not, God will. Pride is one of the worst, is the worst cancer of all sins. And its remedy is humility as we die to self at the very cross of Christ. Paul seems to agree by offering humility as the first in his list of Christian attributes, of what should characterize the Christian life. Humility, as some have said, is not thinking of yourself more than you should, and it's also not thinking of yourself less than you should. It actually is not thinking of yourself much at all, but seeking to think of and honor Jesus Christ. And with it, Paul pairs up gentleness. One of our sons lately has been displaying several cuts and scrapes on his face that were inflicted by one of his brothers. My little boys have a hard time being gentle. Like little lion cubs, they scrap and fight with one another. And so my wife and I are learning how to grow them out of this boyishness to mature them into godly, healthy masculinity that expresses gentleness. But gentleness is not merely a matter of how we treat one another physically. In fact, for many of us, gentleness could be best applied to how we speak to one another. Roughness in our speech lacks gentleness. When I am at home with my children and they are being loud and rowdy, tempted to be harsh with them, I can use my size and my strength and my louder voice to intimidate them into submission. But in doing so, I am not walking in a manner that is worthy of my calling in Christ Jesus. God calls me to be gentle even when I need to be firm as I get the attention of my children and try to demonstrate for them what is respectful in the volume of your voice, in the behavior you put on display that is fitting for the children of God. A second couplet that Paul offers to us here in verse 2, among the Christian virtues is patience, bearing with one another in love. It's quite common nowadays for people to admit that they have little patience. I warn you not to pray for it. Some people have made it a virtue to demand and expect everything to come as fast as possible. The long traffic light tries our patience. That person in front of you who fails to see that the light has turned green within a nanosecond is fully deserving of a honking of the horn. We sympathize with those whose flights were canceled 
by Hurricane Sandy. We sympathize more with those who lost power for many days and for those who lost their entire homes. Patience is scarce as water, electricity, and gasoline in such tragic situations. We have grown conditioned in our society to expect immediate response and service. But have you ever noticed how people who are in dire need, those who had almost despaired of any hope, turn bright and revive their hope when someone comes to help them? When the crews come with their chainsaws to remove the trees and the crew that follows to restore the power and the electricity that have been lost, people's spirits turn bright. People's hopes revive when they know that someone cares for them and is able to help them. If that is true, should not Christians, Christians who always have someone who genuinely cares for you, and always have someone who is able to help you, should not believers be the most patient of all people? I believe that patience comes not from desiring things less, but desiring and trusting God more. As the holidays approach us, I'm sure that all of us will have many opportunities to put patience into practice. We will be shopping. We will be preparing meals. We will be decorating, traveling, accommodating our guests, our family, our friends. And when our patience is tried by long lines, when we are tempted to be harsh with a child or an aged parent, when we grow weary of continuing to bear with a difficult, strained relationship, I encourage you to remember your calling. Remember him who patiently bore your grievous sins. Reflect upon the one who endured the cross, scorning its shame, who was crushed for our iniquities who took on himself the punishment that brought us peace. I encourage you to go back to Ephesians 1 through 3 to remind yourself that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have been called to be holy and blameless out of love. The one who has predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. You and I who were once children of wrath, who have now received mercy, we are now seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It is by grace that you and I have been saved. And it's with this knowledge in mind that we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And so lastly, in verses 3 through 6, we have an urging from the apostle calling us to be eager to maintain unity in the spirit and the bond of peace. As we have witnessed in recent national elections, unity is a hard thing to maintain. We are an independent people. We all have interests and desires. We are corrupted by our own selfish ambitions and our pursuit of vain glory. People are easily 
offended and retaliate. We know by observation that any sports team that is to be truly successful must have a unified vision and purpose. It takes a skilled coach to tame the competing egos to focus them all on the common goal of victory and to get the most out of each contribution. Paul says, we are one body with one spirit. We have a common identity, we have the same power, and we have a shared hope of one Lord, one faith, one baptism in which we believe and in which we practice for the honor of Christ. In 1912, Republicans were dissatisfied with President William Howard Taft and put pressure upon former President Theodore Roosevelt to run again. And as they gathered for their convention, it became a rift of party spirit leading the progressives to separate and form a new progressive party. And so splitting the Republican vote paved the way for Woodrow Wilson to become president. Party spirit divides the church. We set up camps. We follow personalities. We become puffed up in our pride, ignoring our call to humility. We demonize others, blind to our own flaws, and fail to see the common goal, to follow Jesus Christ and bring him honor and glory and not simply promote our own agenda. You know, Adolf Hitler built unity, and his unity of vision was based upon a vision of racial and ethnic purity. And he exploited people's envy and greed and the pride of their nation, expositing this idea of a superior race dominating the inferior ones, and even to exterminate the lowest of the low in their minds, to confiscate their belongings and build up their own glory that was thankfully toppled like the Tower of Babel. The Christian church has been established to offer an alternative vision of true unity and of true peace. We have one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. And we have a unity that transcends race, politics, education, economics, and all the other factors that divide this fractured world. Jesus calls us to be one, just as he and the Father are one. You know, in the aftermath of the recent election, there were many people asking, what happened? I thought we would win this time. Sometimes I'm afraid even believers get so caught up in the culture war They may be guilty of neglecting a much greater battle, a kingdom war. Jesus has come to establish a kingdom, and he has given us a calling and equipped us with the tools to carry on in battle, expressed here by the Apostle Paul. Friends, our ultimate hope is not in good 
government, at least not on this present earth. Rather, at God's government. In his economy, there is one true leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who alone is worthy of our loyalty and our devotion. He alone can unify us and deliver us from evil. And our victory is guaranteed, regardless of what the polls have to say. I, for one, would like to see Christians known less and less for squabbling and attacking and fury and frenzy and more and more characterized and known for their love and compassion in a very, very hurting world in a broken society. You who confess faith in Christ, know that you are bound to him and that you are bound to every other person who claims the name of Jesus Christ. And so, friend, what are we to do in these troubled times? Well, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have received with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And as we demonstrate such unity, peace, and love, might we show forth something attractive to the world that hungers for belonging and acceptance from people who will care for them in the likeness of our own Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. Let us pray. The gracious God and Father, we thank you that you have called us to be your people and your witnesses, and you have given us your Son, who lived and died for us, who rose again, who reigns on high. Thank you for this high calling. Help us in our weakness to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to be a people humble and gentle, patient and loving, to be unified. And might you receive honor and glory on the great day of Christ's return, in whose name we pray. Amen.